I think you may recognize these words. I'm dreaming tonight of a place I love even more than I usually do. And although I know it's a long road back, I promise you I'll be home for Christmas. I also promise you that I won't sing that in public. Trust me, just, just so you know. This sermon series for Advent, Where the Love Light Beams, is inspired by both the prophet Isaiah. We'll hear from Isaiah every week this month. By both the prophet's ancient words and this old classic Christmas song from 1943, I'll Be Home for Christmas. The, the, the series title, Where the Love Light Beams, is one of the lyrics from, from the old song. You no doubt recognize it, I'm, I'm sure. Like I said, it was written in 1943 from the perspective of a soldier overseas during World War II and his longing to be home with his family for Christmas. Kim Gannon was the author of the original words, although there's some controversy about whether or not he got it from a piece of poetry from another author, but you can research that on your own. Nonetheless, Gannon took it to several music companies in Hollywood in the 40s and tried to sell this song and was turned down and rejected every single time. A dozen or more times he was told, no, the song is too sad. It's too melancholy. We're afraid that when the soldiers hear it, it'll make them realize how sad their, their lot is. It'll, it'll hurt families here in the United States. He was just rejected with that same message over and over again. Until one day he was playing golf with a man named Bing Crosby. And some of you know who that is. For those of you under 40, he was the Michael Buble of his, of his day. Well, he's out playing golf, Gannon and Crosby are, when they stop on the 13th fairway or somewhere, and he starts telling them this story, and he says, well, just a minute, let me sing it to you. He sings it to Crosby, and the next day, Crosby puts into motion all the actions necessary to get the song recorded. They recorded in October of 43. By Christmas of that year, it soared to the top of the charts. It's the number one requested song on all the USO Christmas tours to all the soldiers stationed around the world. I'll be home for Christmas. You can count on me. Some said that Crosby's recording did more for U.S. military morale than all the U.S. government's other efforts combined. Which is fascinating, isn't it? The, the music executives were worried that this song was too sad, too melancholy, that it would bring people down. Instead, it boosted their morale. Why? I believe because it spoke the truth. To be half a world away in the midst of war, afraid for your life, Worrying, wondering if you'll ever see your family, your loved ones, your friends and neighbors again. It's a terrible thing. The song names that, or at least it's implied through the music. It's the honesty of naming the pain that allows the dream of being home to finally take root, to take hold. Now, I know that sometimes we're afraid of naming the reality of our lives of naming the things that bring us down, that make us feel sad or, or melancholy, as it were. Sometimes you'd like to just forget all the harsh stuff that's going on in the world. In fact, what I hear often during the month of December as we get ready for Christmas is a lot of people saying, you know, just put all that aside for now. Let's be happy and peppy and full of joy. Let's get ready for the, the celebration on Christmas and forget all the sadness and the sorrow and, and all the rest. And trust me, Trust me, I want to celebrate. I will celebrate. We'll go to parties and we'll have delicious dinners and I love the gift giving and I, I still like the gift receiving. All of the above, I'm sure you do too. All wonderful parts of the celebration. But maybe you know what I know, which is the research that's been done by psychologists and sociologists 
this season of the year for many, as Chuck was implying in his children's moment, is very difficult. The sadness is made broader. The, the worry and the anxiety and the fear seem even more overwhelming. Everyone else, it seems like everyone else out there might be having a party, but too many of us know inside that it's just not quite that way. In fact, for some, the insistence that everyone be happy and peppy and full of joy often makes it even tougher on those who are overwhelmed by a sense of worry. This song resonated precisely because of its honest telling of the soldier's story. I'll be home for Christmas if only, if only in my dreams. Hope begins not when we whitewash the pain away, but when we name it and we see it and we dream of something new being born in its place. Hope is born in the willingness to dream, even in sadness. The prophet Isaiah knows this is true. He's speaking the truth to Israel. He's dreaming of a day when war will be no more, when when spears will be turned into pruning hooks, when, when swords will be transformed into plowshares, when tanks will become tractors, when everyone, and by everyone the old prophet met everyone, all nations will be at peace and everyone will have a place where they are safe and warm and fed. Isaiah 2 is, is full of promise and, and hope and, and a new day, one of dreaming of a multicultural, multiracial, multilingual kind of world where walls and boundaries and barriers are torn down and pushed aside. They are no more. It's a beautiful text, but in between the lines, there's this, there's this sense of unease. Oh, yes, it's a celebratory word, but if you start with chapter 1 in Isaiah, you hear him speak words of judgment. You see, in Isaiah's day, the, the, the country of Israel had failed to care for the poor, for the marginalized, for the forgotten, for the refugee, the widow, the, the left behind. And he looks out at them and he says, and you can read this in chapter 1, you've become like Sodom and Gomorrah. You may not know a whole lot about the Bible, but I'm pretty sure most of you know that Sodom and Gomorrah is not a good comparison. <laughs> it's not a good thing to be compared to. And Sodom and Gomorrah, why were they destroyed according to the ancient tale? Well, according to the prophet Ezekiel, another prophet in the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah were taken down because they too failed to care for the lost, the last, the least, the little, the forgotten, the persecuted, the refugee, the foreigner, the outsider, the hungry. That's why. It's in Ezekiel. You can read it. Isaiah is saying to the folks in his audience, we are becoming like them. Now, I know. I know. That's, that's not very Christmassy. I doubt you woke up today on the first Sunday of Advent, the first Sunday after Thanksgiving, saying, boy, I hope we hear a sermon about Sodom and Gomorrah and destruction. I'm looking forward to that. Probably not. If you did, talk to me later because I'm worried about you. But by the same token, there's a general sense of unease, not just in our text today, but in our country, too. I mean, for the last few weeks, we've been seeing up close our country, oh, at least it feels this way, maybe, start, starting to split. There's anger and frustration and finger-pointing and worry and anxiety. And I know it's tempting. I, I know it's tempting. To say, let's just, let's just skip ahead to Christmas Day. Let's just be happy and peppy and full of joy and just forget about all that. Let's just, let's just move on. I mean, after all, this dream of peace, of home, of 
everyone having enough to eat. That's just, that's just some fuzzy vision from some old prophet in the Bible. We, let's not get too caught up in that. Uh, P.C. Ennis is a good uh, Presbyterian pastor down in Atlanta. He reminded me not too long ago of a TV commercial that played. Maybe you saw this. It opens with the picture, kind of a, a gauzy, hazy picture of what looks like a bicycle. And as the bicycle comes into, into view, you can see it clearly for exactly what it is. It's this beautiful bike. It's got all the, the newest stuff that you could want on a bike. And in the background, there's a voice of a child saying, I'm dreaming of a new bicycle. I'm dreaming of a new bicycle. And I'm dreaming, well, of world peace, but I'm really dreaming of a new bicycle. And we can relate to that, can't we? I mean, sure, world peace, that's a nice thing to dream about, but we want something tangible, something physical, something we can get our hands around. Maybe it's not a new bicycle for you. Maybe it's a new set of jewelry. Maybe it's a new iPhone. My iPhone has a crack in the cover. I'd kind of like a new one. I'm dreaming of that. Maybe it's something, you know, something that you can put under the tree and you take your hands onto it, hold onto it, and go, there, that's, that's it. It's good. It's nice. A dream of peace. Weapons being turned into farm tools. That's just... That's just too crazy. Well, yes, it is, of course. But if we pay attention to the story of Jesus, if we look carefully at the time when he came into the world, we can't get away from the sorrow and the fear and the anxiety and the worry. I mean, after all, the United States of America looks like an absolute perfect promised land compared to Israel in the first century. They were being ruled by a foreign dictator. If you got in the way of Rome, they did whatever they could, including taking your life if they needed to, to get you out of the way, into that world, into that dark place. The light of Christ is born and brought to reality. The world of Joseph and Mary was as violent then as ours is now, but it's in that world where the hope was made real, where the dream began. What we need is a dream, no matter how fuzzy it may be. You know, there's an interesting note there in the first verse. It says that Isaiah saw this word. I believe what he saw were, were, not, were not words written across his mind, but rather a picture, an image, a dream of what the world might look like for everyone with enough to eat, a safe place to call home, where war was no more. Like Kim Gannon, the, the author of our, of our song for this season, I'll Be Home for Christmas, Isaiah was dreaming of a time when love would rule. He's confident that no matter how ugly things are around him, God owns the future. And then there was a phrase later in the text. It said, in days to come. Now that sounds like it's talking about the future indeed, but, but listen to this. Here's a wooden translation of the Hebrew into the English. This is exactly what it says if we were to take it literally. In the back of the days. Oh, let that rumble around your brain a moment. In the back of the days, what it seems to imply is in the midst of this present, the future is being made real. The future is being born. The dream is ready to come true. The reality of what God hopes for all of us is there waiting for us to take hold of it. This is a call, really, to dream of something big, to long for something holier, more sacred than ourselves, to see if we can find the courage to face our sadness and our sorrow so that we can get to that place where hope is made real. Are you dreaming? If your deepest longing could come true, what would it be? It may be that that's the very place where God wants you to go this season of your deepest yearnings. 
I have a friend, we'll call her Carly, that's not her real name, who I spoke to last week about losing her husband. He died back in August. It was a long illness, difficult one, but still they'd been married well over 40 years and it was a sad and terrible time for her. But she's been very busy since then. She was busy before and she continues to be busy. She's a consultant. She works with city governments around the country, does amazing work. She's also a leader in her congregation. She's leading a major effort in their church right now and has taken up all of her time. She puts in 40 or 50 hours in her work. She then puts in another 20 or 30 hours volunteering for her church with this giant project that she's overseeing. And I, I called her last week and I just said, I just want to see, Carly, how you're doing. How are you? And she told me all the busyness that she was involved in. I said, that's amazing. With, with the grief you must be feeling, the ability to get all that work done is just unbelievable. And she said, oh, no, you misunderstand I've taken the grief and I've set it aside. But I really need the season of Advent, she said. I need some space so that I can honor the grief that is there. I need to finally pay attention. I'm so looking forward to the candles being lit, to the darkness that comes early, to the space that I need to finally cry for the loss of my husband and to name the love that we had. I trust and believe that she will find her own future, her own future in the life of God on the other side of this time of grief. So often we want to hide the pain, push it aside, pretend that it's not real, and then all of a sudden it bubbles up in an ugly and, and unfortunate way. Psychologists call this projection. Have you heard that term before, projection? That's when I take the ugliness of my own life and I project it onto somebody else, sometimes because I see in you a reflection of my own worst self, and so I throw that onto you. Sometimes we do that in our house. We call it kick the cat syndrome. You know, you know what I'm talking about? You've had a long day. Dan Jensen knows. This is weird nodding his head, yes. You know, you've had a long day, it's been a tough day at the office, things have not gone well, you're kind of frustrated and upset, and you walk in, finally you're just looking, we well, just want to relax and get home, and as you open the door, the cat, who's just wandering through the hallway, cuts in front of you and causes you to trip, and you kick the cat, and the cat's flying through there going, what did I do wrong? I'm sorry, what, what happened here? No, just so you know, I don't ever actually kick the cat, and I've never done that. But that's what projection is. That's when we come home, and, and you've had that tough day, and maybe you don't kick the cat, but you yell at your husband or you scream at your spouse, you let your wife know that you really don't like anything that's been going on the last couple of days, or you, you, you can see, have you ever done this before? I'm sad to acknowledge I have. Maybe even I've done it to some of you. We keep it all bottled up inside, we pretend like everything's going to be fine, and then it just bubbles out. And the cat flies through the air wondering, what did I do? Richard Rohr gives a, a more theologically appropriate way to describe this. He says, if we don't learn to transform the pain, we'll transfer it. If we don't learn to transform the pain, we'll transfer it. Today's text, Isaiah's words, calls on us to honestly name whatever it may be so that we can transform it and by doing so, be transformed ourselves. The other day, while working on the outline, an outline for a book that I swear I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish in the new year, and the manuscript's going to be done. Whether anybody buys it and sells it, who knows? We'll see what, what happens with that. But I'm going to get this thing done. I was making some notes about my own life and reflecting in this one chapter on a, on a variety of things. When I decided to, to, to figure out exactly how many houses did I live in from birth to age 17 when I graduated from high school. 
So I sat down and I made a list. There was the house in Inglewood, just outside of Los Angeles. There was a house in Santa Fe Springs. There was the house in San Francisco. And I made a list. In 17 years, I lived in 15 different houses. That we, we moved a lot. <laughs> that means we moved, on average, about once every 16 months. You know the old joke here, don't you, by the way? Do you know this joke? My parents moved a lot, but I always found them. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for that laughter. It's made, you've made my day. But in the reflection of this, of living in 15 different places, I realized I never quite knew as a kid what it meant to be home. Home was turmoil. Home was change. Home was constantly revolving from one place to a new one, barely get unpacked, and it felt like we were packing up again. I'm not whining. I'm just describing. And then I got to reflecting on the last 14 years. We've lived in one house. It's the longest time Julie and I have spent together. It's the longest time either of us have ever spent in just one house. We've watched, we've watched our, our two hyperactive, crazy kids grow up to be hyperactive, crazy adults. We've learned to call this place home, to know that here we'll be loved, especially this church. I can think about some of the stuff that we've done in this church. Can, can you imagine some of the things we've, we've called, we, you've done? I mean, you and your generosity gave over $5 million to renovate this, this building, to make sure that this sacred and amazing space will stand again for another 50 or, a one, or 100 years where hundreds, thousands of people will be gathered to worship and sent out into the world to serve. What an amazing thing that is. You set $300,000 of it aside to do work in Northeast Kansas City, another unbelievable gift here in this place. I made a list the other day, again, of all the, all the names of the women who have been involved in refugee resettlement from our church. I'm going to write them a thank you note, and my hand is getting tired writing all these notes because there's like 40 or 50 names of all these women who've given their time and their talent to make sure that somebody who's lost their home has a safe, clean home to move into. You've done that. Two Saturdays ago, Carla Eighty led a same-gender marriage ceremony for two members of our church. We smoothly and graciously moved into that very action. Here in this church, together we have said, yes, together we have said, here you are home. No one, no one will be turned away ever, ever. We make no excuses for our willingness to be a home for everyone. We dreamed it and it, and it came true, but let's be clear. Sometimes seeing these dreams turn into reality is never easy. There's more than just warm and fuzzy feelings needed. There's a need for us to say yes to God's dreams, to recognize that saying yes means there might be some difficult paths ahead. I, I, I kind of hinted at that earlier in the sermon. And I'm wondering it again. Are we as a church, or maybe even more specifically, are you ready to say yes to whatever the Spirit of God is saying to you right now? Are you ready to let that dream find its root in your soul, in your heart? E even though you may not see it come to fruition in your lifetime, are you ready? I read last week about a Christmas pageant. Church was holding it for their children. They invited all the children in the church to come and, and audition for parts. There were 75 kids who showed up. They only had four parts, but everyone was promised you, you can be, there were four speaking parts. We'll, have, we'll need some donkeys and some shepherds and some angels and all, all the rest. Some of you will be in the choir. That will be great. But we just have these four parts. In fact, the first one is Mary. How many of you girls would like to be married? Every girl, there are 40 girls there. Every single one of them raised their hand. 
Of course you want to be. Mary, she's the star. I mean, Joseph, yeah, he has a couple of lines. Get him out of the way. You know, the angel sings a little bit. Fine, good. But Mary, it's all about Mary. She's the center of the tension in this great Christmas pageant. But the friend who sent me this story, he said, I wonder if Mary wanted to be Mary. He said, when the angel came to her, I wonder if there was a, a skip in her heart. I wonder if she went, Me? In fact, in, in Luke's story, he says that Mary said to the angel, how can this be? I mean, if she's going to bring the light of God into the world, if she's going to be the, the, the theotokos in Greek, the God-bearer, how can this be? Think of the risks. Think of the dangers in her life that will now come as a result of this. Think of her at the foot of the cross where her son is how can this be? But she said yes. And now the world marks time by the birth of that child. And the light came to shine in the darkness. What about you? What's God calling you to today? What is God inviting you to experience, to find, to rediscover, maybe perhaps for the first time? Are you willing to dream with God, even if, it means, even if it means you won't get the shiny new bike or the jewelry or the iPhone or whatever it is? Are you ready to find the quiet space you need this season to transform your pain, to change your fear into faith, your pain into hope, your sadness into a dream made true? Are you ready? Are you ready to say yes? Because I believe this. If we can dream it, we can find it. Let us pray. God, give us the courage we need to say yes to you. Give us the hope that we desire so that even when the way is strewn with rocks and is difficult to follow, we know that you're with us and that your hope does not disappoint. Give us finally the courage we need ultimately to give our hearts and minds to you and especially to each other. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.